The story is Eden overflowing. That was the beginning, this picture in the opening chapters of Genesis of Eden, this overlapping of heaven and earth. From this unity of heaven and earth went forth these living waters. And then we have Eden interrupted the fall of mankind, the rebellion of humans against the good, trustworthy authority of the living God. And then this promise of Eden restored in us. John records Jesus saying that from you will spring rivers of life. We recognize that your work is to restore Eden, the unity of heaven and earth in us and then through us through us as families, through us as circles of friends and community so that life might go forth upon the earth. Friends, welcome back to the Become Good Soil podcast for this third and final episode in our three-episode series on Through the Bible. We're so glad you're here. If you notice that uh, part of my voice isn't with us, it's because I left it on the dance floor whoop, whoop. last night. Um, oh, ow. Pretty much left everything on the dance floor <laughs> yeah, here at 45. <laughs> <laughs> our beloved Sue uh, from our Waterheart team married one of uh, my favorite men, David Eitmiller. If you recall, podcast number 31 was 100 Miles with Dave Eitmiller. At the time, he was married to a woman named Sue who fought a losing battle with cancer. And so as life unfolded, God brought another Sue into his life. Now they are Dave and Sue Eitmiller, and we had the joy to be on the dance floor with our kids. And there's that moment, you know, at 45, where there are some moves that have been retired. (laughs) There's I don't no know, Mo. You look well, pretty well, good well, last night. Just say, going good. into the night, I was retiring that move that cost me a meniscus at an earlier wedding. But then you look at your 14 year old and 17 year old kids, and you just go, "Everyone wants to be remembered for something, <laughs> right? Right? We want to leave a legacy." Snyder, so we you, left it all there, including did. my voice. You did. You. I mean, we are legacy done and done. Done and done. Sealed. <laughs> It's only weird if it doesn't work. Oh, man. So it was a great story. And speaking of stories, Eugene Peterson, as most of you know, translated the Bible in one of the most beautiful translations, the message, um, to make it accessible to the hearts of people in contemporary age. And he says in the introduction of Matthew, I'll paraphrase, is this, every day we wake up in the middle of something that is already going on, some story that's been going on for a long time, genealogy and geology, history and culture, cosmos, and the very life and breath of God. We are neither accidental nor incidental to the story. Through the scriptures, which build to the epic crescendo in the four gospel accounts that launch us into the New Testament. We're given orientation. We're given a briefing. We're given background. We're given reassurance. And through it all, friends, God is coming for the hearts of his people. He's coming right where we are. He's coming right who we are. He's making a way where it appears that we have no way. 
And God is perfectly capable of restoring the world and the people that he created. And the wildness of it all is that he wants to do it with us as partners in the greatest story ever told. And so today, as we come yet again in the middle of something, this part three of our Through the Bible series, we want to begin by leaning into one of the Bible Project's invitations to locate ourselves in the great narrative arc of the story that is home to every story that's ever been told. Let's dive into their audio of their video. First of all, this word gospel, what does it mean? Well, it means good news. Which raises the question, good news about what? Well, in Mark's gospel, Jesus enters the story announcing that the time is fulfilled. God's kingdom has come near, so turn around and trust this good news. So the good news is about God's kingdom arriving, but what does that mean? Well, it's Jesus' way of summarizing the whole biblical story that leads up to himself. The whole story. Okay, give me the short version. Well, the story begins with God creating a good world and then appointing humanity as his representatives to rule it. But then the humans rebel over and over, leading to a world of violence and death. That's a problem. But God's committed to making it work. So he chooses Abraham and his family to restart the project. Then through Moses, God brings the family into a garden land of abundance so that he can restore all of the nations through them. Right, Israel becomes a kingdom with amazing kings like David, but eventually Israel rebels too, and it leads them into destruction. But Israel's prophets said that God wasn't giving up. He was going to personally come and restore Israel so that his justice and peace could spread to all nations and to all creation. This hope was called the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus said he was bringing to Israel. Yes, Jesus's good news is about God's kingdom, the new creation that was arriving to restore humanity to their role as God's partners in ruling the world. This is why the gospel has so many stories about Jesus liberating people from death and disease, along with all of his teachings about generosity to the poor or forgiveness and loving your enemies. He was inviting people to live in God's new world. Exactly. And so this is one of the main goals of the gospel, to show how Jesus is bringing the whole biblical story to its fulfillment. So that's why the gospel authors are constantly appealing to the Hebrew scriptures while telling the story of Jesus. Yeah, like when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Matthew reminds us that this was anticipated by the prophet Micah. And he directly quotes from Micah. Yeah, these direct quotes are really common. But more often, the gospel authors weave biblical phrases into the story without telling you, so you can discover it for yourself. Like when Jesus is baptized and God announces from the skies, You are my son, my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, if you do some digging, you'll find that God's statement blends together phrases from three biblical texts to identify Jesus as the royal son of David, the seed of Abraham, and the servant who's going to suffer for the sins of his people. Whoa, that is subtle. Yes, and the gospel accounts do this on every page. Every book is constantly showing how all of the biblical stories about Abraham or Moses and David and all the prophets, all of it points forward to Jesus. Now, why are there four different accounts? Wouldn't one be enough? Well, the diversity is on purpose. Each of the four gospel authors has shaped and arranged their stories about Jesus differently, so they can emphasize different things about him. 
Matthew presents Jesus as a greater Moses. And so he's grouped Jesus' teachings into five large blocks, just like the five books of the Torah. Luke highlights how Jesus is God's royal servant from the book of Isaiah, who brings God's light to the nations. Mark presents Jesus as a new start for humanity, bringing the mystery of God's new creation crashing into the present. And John focuses on Jesus' claim to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, become human, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Those are really different from each other, but they all tell the same basic story. A man from the region of Galilee teaching this good news, but who's ultimately crucified as a criminal. Yes, all four books of the gospel are showing how the arrival of God's kingdom through Jesus led him up to the cross, where he was enthroned as the king of God's new world. He's given a robe, a crown, and a scepter. Right. And as Jesus suffers the consequences of humanity's rebellion, he's showing that the power of God's kingdom comes through his love and self-sacrifice. And when he's raised from the dead, we're watching the dawn of the new creation. So the gospel authors don't just want their readers to know about the good news of God's kingdom. They want them to become a part of it. Yes, the gospel is designed to persuade us to trust and follow Jesus so that we can participate in the new creation that he began. Gosh, Morgan, as I listen to that, I, I can just feel my heart rise. The gospel of the kingdom, the new creation arriving, Jesus um, coming and arriving to restore humanity to the, the place that God intended, that we would become wise and good and trustworthy stewards of God's good creation, partnering with God to carry this beautiful creation forward. And um, it's just so moving. And then the, the marvel that the gospel writers, for example, have hidden these references that illumine who Jesus is and his significance in the the larger story on every page. You know, that example of his baptism, that when the father says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. In our context, we've read that story and it's been so meaningful as that act of God validating Jesus and owning that we need validation from the father. And to recognize, yes, that's true. And there's all kinds of things that Matthew is intending when God working through Matthew is intending to communicate with that um, profound exaltation of the Father, that it's referencing Jesus as the seed of Abraham, as the son of David, and the suffering servant. So it's just like, wow, this is incredible. There's just more here than I ever conceived of. I love that, Sherry. I'm thinking to a podcast that I recorded that'll be released um, soon called What's Your Bias? And in it, I referenced the four different gospel accounts and the, and the fascinating invitation we get to experience the story of Jesus from four very unique vantage points from a set of bias where like Matthew, for example, he wanted to bring us into the genealogy and the history and show that Jesus was the new Moses. It was very unique to him. So he structures his storytelling around five books with an intro and outro, just like the Torah. And it's just fascinating 
the depth and breadth of things I would have not understood yeah. if someone didn't point it out. But now, yes. as Tim and John have shepherded us through this experience, it's a whole nother depth and dimension yes. of the gospel coming alive. As they said in the video, that it's all integrated yes. and it all points to Jesus. Yes. And yes. so we're recovering treasures. I was talking to a young man last night and he, we were just simply kind of describing his life as a map, a treasure map. And in his early 20s, he's going into unchartered territory that it exists on the map, but it's not yet been discovered. Right. And so he's putting more pins on his map, one experience at a time. Love it. So as we turn into this episode, Share in episode two, you know, I recorded that with a group of like-hearted men that are all become good soil, intensive alumni. And in it, we kind of kicked off with talking about what our experience was in reading the Bible through and through. And some guys had read it quite a number of times. And it was actually from a very religious background that actually um, took them further away from God. Other Guys had never read through the Bible. That was at least half of the men. A varied collection of experiences or lack thereof of reading through the Bible. I'd love to turn to the why, mm -hmm. the why behind it. Like, why would someone at this moment in their story, at this cultural moment of the human experience, commit a year to going through the scriptures end to end? Yes. I go to two places. So first is the questions that you've really honed for me with um, initiation, these four questions. And in some ways, they're fundamental worldview questions. And the four questions that Mork has distilled for me is, who is God? Who am I? What is the story? And what is my frontier? And I think that there's a question Subsequent question then is, who, who has the authority? Who am I giving the authority to speak to those questions? Mm -hmm. who, who gets to be at the table in that conversation? And what are the criteria for voices that I'm going to listen to? And that that's a really, um, that's, that's a lifelong work to hold those questions and to also practice becoming more and more aware of, you know, know both who we might readily acknowledge we're, are speaking to that question. And then as we've talked about excavating story work, excavating bias, ex excavating social location, what has answered those questions for us that we maybe weren't even conscious of? So anyways, this lifelong work of, of filling out those four questions, maybe changing our mind, excavating and dredging up answers to those questions that... Um, are, are not viable or are bringing harm to ourselves or bringing harm to others in the way that we're acting out. So those four questions. So part of my why for coming to these texts and reading the whole scripture is I have recognized that I either will consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally, or some mixture of both answer those questions some way or another, and then orient my actions around that so what does it mean like to consciously enter in to um, exploring those four questions? And because I've, I've decided by gr the grace of God, by the wooing of God, I've responded to Jesus's pursuit. I believe he's pursuing all of us to become his disciple, to follow him. 
I'm drawn to several places in, in the New Testament where uh, help me connect again with, so therefore, if I'm charged with answering these four questions, why go to the scriptures as a disciple of Jesus, especially why go to the Hebrew texts? And so I wanted to just, I've been reflecting more on um, Luke 24. Jesus appears to the disciples who are trudging home, heartbroken from Jerusalem. And this is a um, Luke's record of their encounter. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, meaning Jesus' crucifixion, his trial, perhaps even starting back with his triumphal entry, so what had happened that entire week preceding Jesus' death. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? What are you guys talking about? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. And I love how uh, John Elder just pointed out to me the absolute hilarity and playfulness and mischievousness of Jesus to portend that he doesn't know what's happening. You know, it's just a crack up. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, Luke is making a claim here that Jesus, um, to to these men, began to talk to them about how the entire scriptures, from Moses through the prophets, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Luke's claim that our Jesus himself spoke and opened the hearts and minds of his disciples to see him through all the scriptures. Me And at that time, the scriptures he would have been referring to were the Hebrew scriptures. Obviously, you know, the New Testament wasn't even a thing. So that brings me back in my um, taking up the invitation to own the four questions of who is God, who am I, what is the story, And what is my frontier? And then the second step of um, responding by grace to the call to become a disciple of Jesus. If I want to know this Jesus, it appears to me and and it's persuasive to me that there is um, in all of these Hebrew texts are relevant to the lifelong journey um, in this age and in the age to come to know Jesus more as he really is, not as I or others perhaps have 
um, wrongly conceived him to be or inadequately determined he is, but as he really is. So that's part of my why, Morg. Mm. Sherry, I love how you tie in the idea of moving the whole way through scriptures with these four fundamental questions of masculine and feminine initiation. I just even think of the question of who is God? Like the scriptures are telling us a story and our lives are also telling us a story. And so often we come to the scriptures with a bias that we're not even aware of. Mm -hmm. I'm walking intimately through this year um, with uh, just a few men excavating their stories and kind of guiding their initiation. And we've been digging really deep in the question of who is God. And it's taken some real honest excavation of their story for a man to get to this conviction that from his childhood, he came up with the operating assumption that God is weak, God is distant, God is incapable, and God is impotent. Now, he would have never said that, um, and that doesn't correlate with his theology, but his operating view of reality is he begins with an approach to life that is rooted in that belief an answer to the question, who is God? And so to take this journey for an entire year gives us this fresh illumination that we get to recover the truth about who God says God is. Mm -hmm. And so that's the question, who is God? Like, is there a particular question of the four, by way of example, that's stood out to you mm -hmm. in this kind of narrative arc of going through the scriptures that's challenged your thinking? Yes, Morgan. I'd like to speak to um, just one reflection on, on the question of who is God, and then um, who am I and what is my frontier are two that I'm thinking of, um, especially in this season. That idea of who is God, now, um, I think you and I both have been humbled by, uh, again, that the, the Bible is not, is neither a dictionary nor is it, you know, is um, like a phone book or a... Um, an atlas where you can just like look up and find the questions because it's a story. We don't necessarily, we, you know, we, ha it, it requires us to work, to um, work with this story that is being told. And so there've been sometimes if I were to just take, let's say two chapters out of the book of numbers, I might be really disturbed with the answer I get to who is God right. based on these two chapters. Right. So I think, um, Again, that there's tension in that, and tension is the doorway to growth. And so, but I, I just want to acknowledge when we're saying that these texts, we're giving them authority to, to guide us on a journey to, of discovery. We're not saying this is an easy or straightforward journey. So, Morgan, for me, a plumb line when I come to those troubling stories that I feel like the Holy Spirit is just impressing on my heart is remember, you know, if something is troubling. Go back to Jesus, who, who, you know, the the claim of the New Testament is that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, in whom God was pleased to have all of his divinity dwell. If I am starting to get be like, oh gosh, I don't know who God is for the care of my own soul, I sometimes have, have had to take a break mm -hmm. from the Hebrew text, frankly, and, you know, kind of out of order, as it were, take refuge back in the Gospels or in Paul's letters because I, I get a little confused about 
or, or, or unsettled about who is God. So just remembering Jesus, because we are followers of Jesus, we are receiving the claim that He is the long-expected Messiah. He is the revelation, the ultimate revelation of who is God, that that's my home base and my, my rock and my refuge as I'm working through these very um, complex narratives. So I just wanted to say that from, you know, so been so important and essential for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, secondly is this question of who am I and what is my frontier? And you and I talked about this on our first episode about basically, you know, um, the way that the gospel story can sometimes be somehow truncated into you're a sinner, Jesus died for your sins, and now you can escape hell and after death go to this disembodied place, you know, escaping the earth. And I was just explaining my perplexion of I'm not exactly sure how that became the story. But what I find in terms of the story is who am I is I am an image bearer charged to be a steward of God's creation, to rule and reign and care for creation, and set in a reality where my choices have consequences, are very consequential for better and for worse. And also that I... um, you know, when we talked about um, like going for the to the scriptures for comfort, it is imp- an awesome to go and just receive God's love and all the revelation of His love for me. And as I'm reading the whole text through, I also find that question of who am I? I'm also um, a human being who you know we're in between Jesus's death and resurrection and the restoration of all things. I am not yet fully restored, and so. I'm also a being who has a capacity. I guess we would, you know, it's classically been called the sin nature. But this, you know, um, concept that we see, for example, our, our, uh, the author of Kings draws our attention to it, that this bentness in me to suppress what is good and true and beautiful and make the thing that will serve my desired aim what is right in my own eyes, regardless of the impact on others, on the creation and on God. And so this it introduces to me, who am I? I'm someone who has to be constantly careful of sort of a slip of the hand of this fallen nature in me that though you know Jesus has circumcised my heart, I'm still warring against sin and death and the enemy. So I have to be careful. And we find, I find in the text that it's the religious people who are most in danger of um, misunderstanding who God is, misunderstanding who the story is, misunderstanding who they were. Mm-hmm. And so I just find for me, um, it connects with Jesus's teaching recorded in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount that we have to be have a practice of what's the plank in my own eye? What's, um, you know, Jesus says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. And if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body is full of darkness. And so just that awareness of I want to practice being aware of this vulnerability to self-deception, um, to doing what is right in my own eyes because it meets these um, aims that I have decided are most important to me. So that um, to that point that I had mentioned, there's tremendous comfort in being loved, but there's also tremendous sobriety in my humanity. I have been vested with the capacity to choose in ways that are consequential by my actions and inactions. And so it's a sobering for me. So the question of who am I is I'm an actor in the story 
and my choices have consequences. And I have to work with this liability of self-deception that seems um, the authors of the Hebrew scriptures were intent on warning us of our capacity to self-deceive and our capacity to idolatry and exchange um, our worship of the living God for something else. Chair, you spent a lot of time in the book of Psalms, um, probably more than most books in the Bible. And it's interesting how the Bible project sets the daily readings and how we go through the Bible in a year that in general, it's Old Testament and then New Testament, but it's not specifically how they're laid out in the modern Bible. And every day they include one Psalm. I'm curious what that kind of um, dynamic has been like for you and why you think they chose to lay out this through the Bible experience in that manner. Mm. Well, you know, Morg, my response to that is informed by um, a podcast I've listened to from the Bible Project and some teaching that I had received from them that, as you had talked about with the Gospel of Matthew and how, you know, once um, it was pointed out to you that Matthew was making a claim of Jesus as the new Moses, and you could see then how Matthew had designed his his gospel with these five sections to reflect the Torah. For me, um, the Bible Projects introduced me to this idea that the Psalms were arranged. And I've always wondered, like, why are they arranged this way? Is it chronological? Like, is it just a random, the way that the Psalms are arranged? Um, The argument that the Bible Project has introduced me to is that the Psalms are also in, in literally the Psalter, not the salt shaker, but the Psalms can be called the Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, um, to tell a story, a unified story about a king who, um, the promise of the Messiah, the Psalms even tell of the Messiah being abandoned, as we have in Psalm 88, where the psalmist closes with the statement that darkness is his closest friend, and then the return of the king, and then closing in these most incredible five psalms that, you know, the Psalms 145 to 150 that are just this extraordinary exaltation of the goodness of God and the beauty of the earth and the um, proclamation of God's victory. So I have loved watching how the psalms, the way that they just happen to fall through the year, and you actually go through the Psalter twice, almost twice, because there's 150 psalms, you know, and you go through 365, actually go through more than twice. So anyways, how it correlates with this um, claim that the Bible is one unified story leading to Jesus. And um, so I've just absolutely loved, loved seeing that. And I just had never seen that before. The Bible Project drew my attention to it. It's fascinating to hear because uh, I so appreciate that. And I had like such a different experience where some of the Old Testament was a slog. Yes. Right? I think particularly as a man, particularly consenting to become a wholehearted king, to read the stories in First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings of the constancy of uninitiated men given yes. power, yes. It, it, it was disheartening. There were times where I, it was just too much. It was like, where's the hope? And then having those Psalms, so many of them for me, Um, I wasn't connected to the overarching narrative that you're describing, which was so beautiful. But for me, it was like a daily meditation Mm. of a chance to just sit and root back in God. And as you shared earlier in the podcast, to recall 
the full depth and breadth of who God, of who we know God to be and all of his care and compassion and prevailing work that he is at the center, that actually we play a role in his story and it's not vice versa of writing God into our story. And so they were very grounding. They were very settling and ultimately very hopeful to carry me through some pretty thick passages that that didn't feel like they had a through line at the time. Yeah, I love that, Morgan. It's beautiful. I think one of the themes that I have uh, appreciated through this journey of the year is as we mature, our relationship with the scriptures are intended to mature. I think of the song from Jonathan and Melissa Helser of Endless Ocean and Bottomless Sea, right? That there is so much possibility. There's infinite possibility and infinite promise. And so the question that's really challenged me at 45 and at this third decade of my walk with God is how am I allowing my relationship with the scriptures to mature? You know, I've referenced David Brooks many times. He's a brilliant author, uh, New York Times columnist. He wrote A Road to Character. More recently, he wrote The Second Mountain. And I love that his description of his maturing relationship with the scriptures. If you don't know, he's born Jewish into a Jewish family and came to a deeper faith. He would describe it um, with the risen Christ later in life. And in his book, The Second Mountain, he does a brilliant description of his maturing with the scriptures and how he's come to appreciate them late in life. And he describes that in his childhood, the scriptures, which for them, for him at the time as a Jewish boy, were the Torah, right? Mm -hmm. Were the five first books that we have in the modern um, Christian Bible. He said they were the architecture of his childhood. In Hebrew school, they were the myth, uh, performing the functions of myth, helping him understand what was right and wrong, helping him to grapple with emotions, helping him to understand heroism and all sorts of character traits. And he goes on to describe that in college, in early adulthood, he began to use the scriptures as a sort of wisdom literature. It was a tool for understanding and solving problems of life. And I love the way he puts it here. He says, I was big and the stories were small. Just an old book in my hands to be used by me leading my life. And then decades ensue. And over the decades, things began to change imperceptibly. He said, life has a way of happening. He said, my old ideas were not adequate for the extremes of joy and grief I experienced in those decades. He said, the stories kept coming back to me from the scriptures, but they changed as if reformed by the alchemy of time. They grew bigger and deeper, more fantastical and astonishing. Wait, God asked Abraham to kill his own son? And so he goes on, he says, I suppose this happens to most of us as we age. We get smaller and our dependencies get bigger. We become less fascinating to ourselves, less inclined to think of ourselves as the author of all that we are. And at the same time, we realize how we have been the ones being shaped, shaped by history, 
by family, by forces beyond even our awareness. And I think what changed in the most incremental, boring way possible is that at some point I had the sensation that these stories of the Bible are not fabricated tales happening to other, possibly fictional people. They are the underlying shape of reality. They are renditions of the recurring patterns of life. And they are the scripts that we repeat every day of our lives. Adam and Eve experienced temptation and fall from grace, and we experience temptation and fall from grace. Moses led his people from bondage meanderingly toward a promised land, and we take a similar spiritual journey. The psalmist looked into himself and asked, soul, why are you so downcast? And we still do that today. The prodigal son returned, and his father, infused by grace and love, ran out to meet him. Sometimes we too are outrageously forgiven. These stories are not just common things that happen to people. They are representations of our ongoing moral life. We are alive in the natural world, and we use science to understand the layers of our aliveness. We're also alive in another dimension, the dimension of spirit and meaning. And we use biblical stories to understand the dimensions of our aliveness. I can only answer the question, what am I to do? Wrote Alistair McIntyre. If I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? If there are no overarching stories to our lives, then our life is meaningless. Life does not feel meaningless. These stories provide in their simple yet endlessly complex ways a living script. They provide the horizon of meaning in which we live our lives. Not just individual lives, but our lives together. The stories describe a great moral drama, which is not an individual drama, but a shared drama. We are all still a part of this drama, created and being created still. Beautiful. Cher, I believe you have some treasures to guide us through for the concluding portion of our podcast today. But before we turn there, this three-part Become Good Soil podcast series is above all meant to be an invitation, an invitation to each of your hearts to risk considering diving deep into the scriptures for the first time or for a fresh time to pass through the entire depth and breadth of the scriptures from cover to cover over a year. So on January 1st of 2022, we'll be launching smaller cohorts shepherded by some of the Become Good Soil Intensive facilitators for the Become Good Soil Intensive alumni and the current applicants. And so the hope is that we'll have in time thousands of men and women walking together with God through the scriptures in community to recover treasures beyond their wildest dreams. Friends, as we turn a corner and begin to come to the close of this part three of the Through the Bible series, so you know we always end with a 45-second pause to breathe, to come into the present moment and to have a sacred transition before you go to other things. And so in that spirit, before we go there, 
Sherry, I want to invite you to offer us a sort of final thought, perhaps, Mm -hmm. or a piece of scripture or something that you want to leave us with Mm -hmm. for contemplation and kind of conclusion for Mm -hmm. this series. Sure. Well, first of all, I've been meditating on um, the Chesterton quote that's been so guiding for the work of becoming a king and become good soil, that every generation loses the gospel Every generation is charged with its recovery. And that I, I think about that for my, you know, both as a, you know, you and I as a couple, and then you and I both as individual disciples, this process of sort of losing the gospel, you know, maybe it's for a couple hours, maybe it's for a couple weeks, maybe it's for a couple days, and then, you know, having Jesus rescue us and bring mm-hmm. us back into, um, in, to, to encounter the gospel, the good news of the kingdom again. And so I want to just acknowledge as we, as we transition what you have helped me hone in on, which is, Jesus, you're the initiator. You are the author. You are the finisher. You are the firstborn. Even as we enter into um, considering reading through the Bible, um, I'm aware of the temptation, the habit in me to go again to it's up to me. Would you continue to ransom and deliver us from um, just the structures of self-saving that abide in us still? And would you continue to convert us into a um, vision where our eyes are clearer, God, and we can see that we live in a God-breathed, God-saturated, God-sustained world, and that you are at work and that you will bring your intention for your creation to completion. That nothing can thwart the magnificent creativity and recreativity of the triune God. That all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, God. Though I forget that, and though the headlines um, compel me to disbelieve it. Lord, let your good news of your kingdom find a deeper seat in each one of us. Thank you, Lord. So Morgan, as David Brooks, I I loved that um, reading and um, his suggestion that we must have stories. Uh, Stories do contain the meaning and it's how we, how our lives have meaning And the story that we find ourselves in, that we're believing to be true, is going to orient us And um, for that question of what shall I do now? What shall I do next? So to revisit the big story, I've been thinking of it this way. The story is Eden overflowing. That was the beginning, this picture in the Um, opening chapters of Genesis of Eden, this overlapping of heaven and earth, and that the author of Genesis took extra time to tell us about the rivers in Eden that flowed out from Eden and watered the rest of the land. That from Eden, from from, um, this unity of heaven and earth, went forth these living waters. And then we have Eden interrupted the um, fall of mankind, the rebellion of humans against the good, trustworthy authority of the living God, the rebellion of spiritual beings 
against their um, their sovereign, their creator. And then this promise of Eden restored, Eden restored, and that Eden is being restored in us. John records Jesus saying that from you will spring rivers of life, that as Eden is restored in us, um, the river of life will flow out to us, watering the earth around us, watering relationships, watering other humans, contributing literally with a tributary of life to their becoming and their thriving and the manifestation of what God meant when he meant the other humans around us and then on and on into communities and um, larger circles. So Lord, we recognize that your work is to restore Eden, the unity of heaven and earth in us, in our closest relationships, and then through us, through us as families, through us as circles of friends and um, community, so that life might go forth upon the earth. So we close, Morgan, I'd like to just close us, draw our attention to um, the closing chapter of the final book in this library of books. We'll read from John's Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of a great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him without fear and faithfully. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more darkness. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Then Jesus is recorded to say, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Finally, he says again, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he or she has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. And so in response, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him, let her, take the free gift of the water of life. Amen. 
Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Friends, it's an honor to share this sacred space with you. I thank you for joining us on this episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. And before you transition to whatever it is God has for you in this day, we do invite you to take these 45 seconds to drink in the sacred scriptures that we all just received. Let them find fresh home in you. Breathe in the life of God. Breathe out all that stands in the way of what he has for you. Receive new life in Jesus' name.